Well, good morning to everybody. So, we're talking about God's story of marriage. And today, we want to talk about the way things can be. We, we looked the way things were, how has God actually designed marriage from the beginning, the way things are, the fact that we're all sinners, right? And redemption, the way things can be. So I was thinking, I don't know if you've heard the story of a young single woman who was uh, walking on the seashore by herself, and she came upon a, a lamp. She rubbed it, and a genie came out. And she said, whoa, I, I, get, I get three wishes, right? She goes, no, things are tough. You only get one wish, actually. She said, okay. So he said, plan well. So she thought for a minute. She, she had a map with her, a map of the Middle East, because she was very passionate about the Middle East. So she pulled it out, and she said, okay, I want peace in the Middle East between Israel and, and the Arabs and the whole thing. And Jeannie looked at her and said, what are you, nuts? I mean, I'm a genie. I'm not God. I mean, I can't do anything like that. No, no, no. You've got to make another request. So she thought for a second. She said, um, oh, I know. I would like to meet a man who would love me, would marry me, and love me for a lifetime, who would do special things for me, like make breakfast for me in the morning, rub my back if I'm sore, be sensitive. When we have kids, to change the diapers, not, not, not to leave that whole thing to me. And, and so she's going on and on and on. Finally, the genie just cuts in on her and says, whoa, 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 wait a second, lady. Wait a second. Let, let me see that map again. I mean, can we really change... Can you really teach an old dog new tricks? We wonder about that sometimes, don't we? Makes me think of uh, Joshua and Esther. That's nobody that anybody in here knows. But it's a little bit of all of us. Josh and Esther contacted me and wanted to get together. So we got together and talked, and they're both professing believers, but their marriage is not doing well. They've been married for 15 years. They have a couple children. And um, she would describe him as a totally disengaged husband. He does his own thing, and when he does engage, it's yelling and screaming, and he's even punched into the wall with his fist. Ne- never physical abuse to her, but a lot of, thing, a lot of things like it. Very, very, very angry. And, and she, she would say, I, uh, he says he loves me, but I, I, I doubt that. And, and then when I talk to Josh, he, he tells me that she's nothing but a nag. All she ever does just tell him everything he does wrong. And he's just been beaten up from it from so long that he's chosen not to talk. And when it gets too much, he explodes and yells at her. 
the kids have seen it. She will often talk him down in their presence. And he's happy to yell and scream in their presence too. What do you say to Josh and Esther? I mean, like, they're Christians. But like, what do I, what do I say to them? Give them two verses and see you in the morning? I mean, like, what do you do? I suppose I'd want to do a variety of things with them. And yes, there's more data you need to collect about their past. And yes, are there medical issues? And yes, yes, all, all that. I, I get all that. But, but that aside, I would like to tell them at least two things. First thing I'd want to tell them, and, and if you have your, I put notes, again, I put notes in the bulletin. I won't look at the, all that right now because you'll see it on the slides, but you're welcome to follow along or just listen and look at the notes later. You know the one thing, the first thing I want to tell them? I want to tell them, and, and I want to tell them this. I'm going to say something to you right now, Josh and Esther, and probably it'll be nothing but words. May, may not at this point, it may be such fantasy land that it doesn't seem to kind of connect, but one of the things I want you to know is that you can't change your marriage, but God can. And he can do a supernatural work in your marriage in a way that goes beyond anything that you can imagine so that regardless of what your mate, mate does, you can be different. Now, I, I want you to know that. There is something that can happen that can only be done supernaturally. You know what it made me think of? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 19, there's this debate going back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders over divorce and, and remarriage. And bottom line is Jesus comes and, and, and they're saying, hey, you should be able to divorce and remarry for a whole bunch of things and this and that and blah, blah. Jesus just says, no, no. With the exception of sexual infidelity, from the beginning, it was never meant to be so. And what Jesus is doing is, Jesus is stepping into a world that has fallen with sinners, in which Moses has made some concessions in the law. And Jesus steps in, and part of what he says, I have come to forgive, redeem, and change people. And I want to return you back to the way things were meant to be at the very beginning. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. See, that's what Jesus does. Jesus wants to transform. The disciples that were taken back by that, they were going like, whoa, that's really, like how? And you're kind of left dangling a little bit. And then you continue reading in your scriptures. And you come to Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn it over there. I'll just read a couple verses. I'm not going to work through it in detail. We've done that in the past. But just, just to mention a couple things. Jesus steps into a world where relationships are fractured. And people are at odds with each other. And, and they, they just kind of, they feel like, he doesn't meet my needs. She doesn't meet mine. And, and they live their lives by contracts and conflicts. Don't you, don't you find that? 
So couples will often say this to each other. Look, if, if you'll meet my needs and expectations, then I'll meet yours. And they set up a contract. And then what happens? Somebody violates the contract and it's conflict. Fine, you won't do mine, I won't do yours. And they just kind of go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in the relationship between a contract and conflict, contract and conflict. And it's a, it's a circle. It's, matter of fact, it's a downward spiraling circle. And it's, 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 it was never the way it was meant to be, and you'll never work it through on your own. But Christ has come to change us. In Ephesians chapter 5, he paints this picture of the marital relationship that makes our jaws drop, to be honest with you. And the best, the best diagram I've seen for Ephesians 5 um, comes from a guy by the name of Jackson, so I've used it for many years, and it just really, really works for me. I, I want you to think for just a second that what you have up there are two triangles, okay? You've got a gray triangle and a blue triangle. Do you see that? And what, what happens is these two triangles have been overlaid on top of each other. The man represents the gray triangle, and the woman represents the blue triangle in Ephesians 5. Do you notice that the, the bulk of their relationship is that shared middle section? Do you see that? Does, does that make sense? Have I lost you? Are we okay with that? Okay. You know what that means? That means my wonderful wife who's sitting on the second row here, Sherry. I mean, Sherry is my best friend. And most of what you see in my relationship with Sherry, or should see in my relationship with Sherry, is that we're just the best of friends. And, and, and what we do, we do together for each other, which is why in Ephesians, and I've mentioned this to you before, this is, a, this is unbelievable. When the Bible says that we're one flesh, it's not merely talking about sex and, and things like that. It is. It's certainly that's part of it. No question about that. It's talking about a oneness at every level, spiritually, socially, emotionally, physically, at every level. So much so that in Ephesians chapter 5, look at this. This is like unbelievable. God is talking, Paul, uh, Paul is talking to the Ephesians here. God's talking to us, specifically to the husbands. In Ephesians 5, notice what he says to the man uh, in verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Listen to this, listen to this. He who loves his wife loves what? Himself. There is no other relationship on earth as close as the relationship between a husband and a wife. Nothing compares to it. And he says, Doug, you are supposed to be so close to Sherry you're supposed to nourish her and cherish her as you do your own body because when you love her, who are you loving according to this text? Yourself. Because we are so bound together. That's not true of any other relationship on earth. I think I've told you before, like, I love Tim Huff. He's my friend. But when I love Tim, I'm not loving me. I'm loving him. Right? I mean, we're friends. But Sherry is my wife. And when I love Sherry, I'm loving myself. Do, do you see that? I mean, it is, it is so much this that you go like, wow, it is that whole middle section. I mean, God's design 
is that you are constantly thinking of ways to love her and care for her and she, you, and back. Now, I know it's miles away from where Josh and Esther are. I get that. But one of the things I want them to know is that's where God wants to move you. You won't move there yourself. Forget it. But God says, I can do that. I can make you so one that there is love and care that is unimaginable. Now, the the, the chart tells me something else. Do, Do you see the sections that are still only blue or only gray? Sherry's a woman, and I'm a man. There's some things only a man can do in the relationship. And there's some things that only a woman can do in the relationship. I have never nursed a baby. Ever. For good reason. And I often joke around that if we hear noise down in the basement at 3 o'clock in the morning, I don't nudge my wife and say, honey, could you check that out? No, that's my job. Okay? It's my job. So, so do you see what I'm saying? There's, there's parts a woman can only do that only a man can do. But notice the one triangle is pointing upward and the other one is pointing downward. In Ephesians 5, the Bible says the man and the woman are equal as persons before God. God does not look at Sherry and look at me and say, oh, you know, I like Doug better because he's a man. Pfft. No. We are both brothers and sisters in our relationship with God, right? We are bought, we are loved the same. But I am called to a role of leadership in the home, and Sherry is called to a role of loving submission in the home. And that's why the guy's triangle is pointing upward and the woman's is pointing downward. That doesn't mean I treat her like a child. She's not a child, she is my partner. I desperately need her in my life to complete me, desperately. But it does mean at the end of the day, when hard decisions need to be made, that I will stand responsible. And God says, I want to do such a transformation in this couple's life that they look like that. Where, where the woman out of faith toward God because she trusts God. She's able to invest in her husband and share in appropriate ways. But she, she's always looking for ways to encourage him in his God-ordained role as leader. And that guy, he knows he comes so far short of loving like Christ. But Christ says, I want you to move back toward your wife. And I want you to give yourself to her with the same kind of love that I give to my own, to the church. And I'll tell you guys, I will never master that. I won't. It's always out there. But it's put out there because it can become an increased reality in our lives. And so one of the things I want to say to Josh and Esther is, look, I know you're here. But if the true and living God has saved your soul and given you his spirit, he wants to do that in your life. 
Now, you're not going to leap there. It's going to be slow and incremental and painful and difficult and three steps forward, two steps back, all that stuff. I get it. I get it. But I want to give them hope that the true and living God can take true believers who know Christ and say, this can become a greater reality in your life. One other thing that strikes me is really interesting in this book. It it just, oh, man, it just blows me away. Let me tell you what Paul is not doing in Ephesians 5. Paul is not saying this. Let's see. Husbands need to love their wives, and wives need to love their husbands, and they submit and lead and all that kind of stuff. Man, alive. I wish there was... I wonder if there's any good illustrations of that. Is it like a baseball team? Oh, not exactly. Is it like, uh, oh, no, hey, I got one. It's kind of like Jesus in the church. Yeah, I'll use that. That is not the way Ephesians works. It's the reversal. The ultimate reality that counts above everything else, which means it, whether you're married or not, what's most important is that you're married to Christ. And so the overarching theme all the way through Ephesians is Christ and his church. And when you come to Ephesians 5, you know what God allows? God allows Doug and Sherry Finkbeiner to become just a a little picture with all of our flaws and failures and all that, but just a, 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 a growing object lesson of the greater, greater reality of Christ in the church. Is that not unbelievable to you? you? Do you mean we, as believers, get to be used to picture that? Mm-hmm. We're not doing so well. Okay, okay. But it's what God wants to do. Yeah, but we're, we're here. I know. And God wants to take you here but it's going to be hard and slow. Yep. Long. You got it. Be a whole lifetime. Pretty much. Right. Yeah, that's true. But he wants to so transform us that our marriages become pictures of that ultimate reality of Christ and his church. Is that not unbelievable? I spoke on this a couple weeks ago. But I want you to read this in light of your marriages, your parenting, any of your relationships. This is in Ephesians 3 before he gets to Ephesians 5. Now unto him who is able to do what we ask, wouldn't that be cool if I'd come in prayer to God and say, God, help me in my relationship with Sherry, Lord. I'm really struggling with this. Will you please help me with this? God says, okay, but that's not far enough, think, fine, or try it again. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Now unto him who's able to do what we ask or think, I can just go there and in my mind be thinking, or, you know, how do you verbalize your mind? But, you know, I can be just doing it in my mind. Not enough, man. Now to him who's able to do all that we ask or think. Do you mean God can even put his finger on that issue in my life? He can change me there? Mm -hmm. But that's not what he says. Now unto him who's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. 
Look, Josh and Esther, they're ready to cash it in because they're thinking, we can't do this for another 25 years. This, I mean, I know it's going to be hard on the kids and all, but like, I can't do this with her. I can't do this with him. It's nothing but tension. You're talking about stress will kill you? My marriage will kill me. That's what they think. And part of what I want them to know, Christ has come to redeem us, to forgive us of all of our sins, to change us from the inside out, to slowly change us, so that we can move into this direction. Do you understand that, folks? That's why I, I told you last week, coming out of Genesis chapter 3, I'm an optimistic realist. When I get to Ephesians 5, I'm a realistic optimist. Why? Because Doug Finkbeiner is such a great person. <laughs> no! I know the depth of my own depravity. There's things I have thought through the years that I would never share with a living soul. And you've had the same experience. No, it's not because of me. It's because I've come to know the true and living God through his son who has forgiven my sins and given me his spirit so that he can do some work in the inside that only he gets credit for. Amen. That's what God wants to do. Now, real quick. Said, fine, Finkbinder, you talked about they're here. Now, what else are you going to tell them? You're just going to like hang this out there and say, ha-ha. No. How does God tend to move us from there to here? And, and that's what I want to just try to practically talk with you, talk through with you, and, and make application to Josh and Esther's life, and then I'll be done. And pray that God will use it in your life. So this is the goal, and this is the process to get there. Well, let me start with this. Um, <clears throat> when I, I like visuals, like I'm a visual guy, so it just kind of helps me. But when people come in to talk about marital issues, there's always a presenting problem. You know, they don't just kind of come in there and say, hi, you know, Marriages are doing really great, and we just, I mean, they're, they're like, he this, she's this, you know, that kind of a thing, right? And, and, and in the top five are typically issues like issues related to sexual intimacy, issues related to finances, issues related to parenting. They, they, you know, they're normally three of the biggies in the top five. And, like, if it's a financial issue, yeah, could I maybe just give them a good financial book? They just got to get on a budget, and then be happy-go-lucky. Yeah, once in a while that works. It's normally not quite enough. But sometimes that's all you have to do. But there's a presenting problem. Normally I'm concerned about how do you relate as a couple concerning that problem. So I want to know how you understand roles, how you communicate with one another, all those kind of good, good things. Great stuff, great stuff. And so I could give some, the guy, I could give... Um, Josh, some, some advice saying, look, next time you're angry, Abraham Lincoln said this, it must really work, um, which is count to 10 before you respond. I think that's really good advice. 
And I, I have no problem with giving advice, counting to 10 before you respond, because maybe you won't get as angry and put your fist through the wall. That's good stuff. Good. So yeah, okay, I'm all for talk. And you, you talk about that stuff. That's just really important. Um, but it's not deep enough. The Bible is all about going to our hearts. Because if we can find transformation at the level of our hearts, if, if Josh and Esther can begin to find out what's going on in their hearts, that will change how they communicate about a whole host of problems. Does that make sense? Okay. So watch. Have you seen this before? I've shown this in different settings. Let me try to explain it. Because when you look at it, you say, like, yeah, exactly. Like, what in the world is that? Like, what is going on up there? Like, crazy stuff. Okay. Let me try to just briefly explain it. And then what I want to do is I want to focus in on those lovely little heart things down there. Okay, that's where we're going. The sun represents the pressures and problems of life. We all got them. Okay. Have you ever wondered why when the sun beats down, some people respond like that bramble bush on the right, and they respond in anger and frustration, they lash back, they close off, just whatever. They're all, all that bramble bush represents are all the bad responses people give to difficult situations. But have you ever wondered why other people can have the same sun beat down upon them and they respond like that fruit tree on the left and there's love and there's patience and there's long-suffering and you're going like, what in the world? Same problem, two totally different responses. Folks, here's the hope. Here's the glory. Here's the wonder. In the gospel, you are never a victim. Because if you were nothing but a victim of your circumstances, we'd all be the right side, and I would say, do the best you can in life, get ahead, step on anybody in the process, and then die one day. (laughs) Something like that. But the Bible will tell us you're not a victim because there's always something going on in your heart. The right side... When the heart's not what it should be, it responds incorrectly to those problems. When it's correct because it's been so filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, the life-giving water of the Spirit, it changes everything. Or it should. So what we talk about the heart. And it's in your notes there. Oh, I'm going to get to this too. Let me get to that in just a second. That's in your notes. That's the last page. But... Let me just tell you what's helped me so much, and, 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 and it's going to be part of the journey for Josh and Esther to get from there to here. When the Bible talks about the heart, because I, I grew up in Christianity, I got saved at a young age, and they used to always tell me, like I'd go to camp and somebody would say, hey, you got to get your heart right with God. And I, you know, I was kind of fuzzy on that, but I kind of knew what they meant, sort of, a little bit, Sometimes. And one of the things I find when you read through the scripture again and again and again, when the Bible talks about the heart, talks about the place where we believe and the place where we worship or desire. 
The Bible will tell us in Romans chapter 1, the reason men and women have gone astray is because they believe the wrong things about God, therefore they believe lies. And they worship something other than the true and living God. And it sends their whole social structures out of whack. And that's humanity. And when Paul in Ephesians talks about the heart, he says it's the place of willful ignorance. Do you hear those two together? That's powerful. Ignorance means I'm believing the wrong thing. I'm believing a lie. Willful means I want to. (laughs) The heart is the place where I want what I want. And I believe things often that I should not be believing. What does it mean to talk to Esther and Josh? I keep forgetting their names. I, so that's why I'm saying it's so like, you know, so if I throw out some other names, sorry. <laughs> this is all off the cuff, okay, their names. Decided on their name Because coming up, I was thinking like, hey, maybe I'll use this name and have Somebody in the chapel think I'm talking about them. So I'm trying to, so if your name is Josh, if, if there's any Josh and Esther's here, I am not thinking about you. I am not, okay? I tried to come up with names nobody else would know. What does it mean to talk to Josh and Esther about their lives in such a way that she doesn't just say, well, he doesn't love me and she doesn't respect me and he this and she that and then we're back at it again. What does it mean for God's spirit to begin to work in their life And for them to begin to talk about, it's kind of what Tim was saying earlier. What is it that actually rules your life right now? You you know what I found time and time again with couples? Because I find it time and time again with this couple, my relationship with my wife. My problem is often not that I want bad things. It's that I want natural things too much. So if I tell you, I want to be loved, does anybody look at me and say, pervert? I don't think so. I want to be respected for the things I do and say. I mean, that's kind of natural stuff, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't like a pat on the back? But you know what makes it so subtle and problematic in marriages? If those natural desires, which are part of life, move from the periphery to center stage. And now life will only work if everybody worships at that shrine which I have constructed. Is it wrong for Josh to want his wife to respect him? No. But should he put that at the core of his life and say, look, lady, you, you either worship at that idol of, my, uh, of respecting me or I, I ain't going to give you nothing. I know that's terrible English, but I'm not going to give you anything. And for her to say, if you're not going to love me, I will disrespect you I will say no when you want certain things physically. I will do a whole list of things. It just just kind of builds right out. And what has happened is a natural desire has moved to the core of their life. 
it has become the core thing that begins to rule them. And you know what's one of the most transformative things in my own marriage? Is when God exposes the idols of my heart. And the idols are not necessarily wide, wild-eyed, perverted things. That can happen too, of course. They're often kind of these things in life that just kind of, you know, we kind of natural stuff that we move to the very center of our life and we demand that that will be worshipped. Whether we say it verbally or not, it rules us. And then one of the most transformative things is when I'm getting, when I'm in issues with Sherry and there's some tension and disagreement, is for me to pull back and ask myself, what do I believe about God? Who, who is he? Is he sovereign? Is he good? Is he just? Do I, do I, like, do I really believe that? And, and what is it that I want right now? My wife to get her act together? Or my God to reveal himself to me in a very powerful way in a situation that makes me feel very uncomfortable and I don't like and I wish it wouldn't be happening. Do you see the difference? And you know what happens? When couples over an extended period of time keep worshiping at the wrong shrine, it com- just makes their marriages more and more, everything gets layered, and it gets more and more complicated. And they call up, and they want to have an appointment with James, Pastor James, and what they want him to do is wave his magic wand so that it's all gone in one week. Am I right, James? <laughs> you know, and, I, I mean, and I get that. I get that. I, would feel, I feel the exact same way. Who likes pain? I get it. Right, And God has a totally different agenda. So for Josh and Esther, what happens as he begins reflecting more on Jesus and he begins to think about the relationship of Christ and the church? And he begins to think about how he is as part of Christ's church, and yet Christ just keeps loving him. He begins thinking to himself, I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't do to me what I do to her. And something in his soul begins to change. Not, not massively. He may try something the next day, and it backfires, and he backs off a little bit. I, I get it, I get it, I know, I know, I know, I know. But he begins to try something. And, and rather than saying, she must respect me, he says, I hope she does. I really do, because it hurts when she doesn't. But I want to be like Jesus is to me. Do, do, do you see what's just happened? He's not going to be stellar tomorrow, Esther. And I tell Esther, if you're looking for if you're looking for batting a thousand, forget it. Just look for the batting average to improve. You know? But the more he does that, the more things will begin to change in his life. Esther, she's had fits of depression that have gone on for days and weeks at a time because she lives with a man that doesn't love her. 
Or that she doesn't think loves her. She doesn't know. Sometimes she thinks maybe, sometimes not. She doesn't know. She doesn't know. God's gospel, God's spirit works in her life, and she gets this sense that I am secure in Jesus Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved. Nothing will ever separate me from his love. Now, I wish I would have it from my husband. I would love to have it from my husband. But it's not the most important thing. I believe that about Jesus. So I can move back toward my husband in a very different way. Now, I'll be honest with you. Often, when I meet couples in these situations, only one is willing to do their job. That's true. But I can tell you this. When two learn what it means to confess and repent at that level, they are already moving in the direction of Ephesians chapter 5. Do do you see? That's how God does his work. He goes down deep. He doesn't just play around with presenting problems. Because if he can get your heart to change, you'll learn to communicate differently with him or her about that because you started at the bottom and you worked up rather than just staying at the top. We don't need quick fixes in our marriages. We need deep-seated heart surgery when it comes to our marriages. That's our only hope. But that's the hope of the gospel. Real quick, and then I'll let you go. I had this process here, which I've kind of already talked about. I'm going to kind of zip through it quick. If we had time, we don't. So we'll just say it. So Esther and Josh are beginning to identify some of the shrines at which they worship. Make sense? And they're beginning to break down those shrines and instead worship the true and living God for who he is. Uh, they got ways to go. And what happens is that old shrine keeps pushing back in. I get it. And, but they're, they're, they're working it, okay? They're working at that level. How do they change? Transformation continues through discipline, dependence upon God. You will never change yourself, but you will never change if you do nothing. So Philippians 2 says, work out what God has already worked in you with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is already working in you both the ability and the desire to be different people. God says, there's something in your soul because my spirit is there. And in discipline, dependence upon God, you step out and you take a risk as you worship now at the, at, at the true and living God rather than your own shrine. You begin to know the power of the Spirit who strengthens us. And, and Romans 8 is just a phenomenal chapter at every level, isn't it? It's just phenomenal. Where the Spirit is so at work in my life That when I talk to God, I say, Abba, Father. It just drives me to intimacy with God. Who do you think's doing that? It's God doing that. It's a great chapter. Because of our union with Jesus Christ, Romans 6 tells me 
that Doug Finkbeiner, all of his life before he knew Jesus Christ, was under the authority and the lordship of sin and the ways of the devil. I was in Adam. When I bowed my knee and trusted in Jesus Christ, I came under new, new ownership and new lordship. Doesn't mean I don't still struggle. I struggle every day of my life. But there's a new Lord and there's new ability because he saved me and he's in the process of changing me. And Romans 6 is all about you can live differently, you think differently, and then you live differently because you realize you've moved from there to here. Great stuff. God's given us all kinds of resources, prayer, Bible meditation, fellowship, one another. We need each other to grow. God designed it that way. It's always from the inside out, and it's always into the image of Jesus Christ. I want to end with, um, with just two slides, and then, then I'm going to close and pray. So Josh and Esther are really beginning to learn what it means to believe the true and living God and to desire him above everything else for who he is. What does growth look like? I told you, nobody does this. Nobody goes here and leaps there. Never happens. It's always slow. It's always messy. It's always incremental. However, there's direction. There's a different orientation, and there's movement. Sometimes it means there's a decreasing frequency of sin. So this guy who when he would get mad, he would call his wife Esther every name in the book. Now, it doesn't happen as often. He used to do it five, six, seven times a week. Now he's doing it once or twice. Now, is that great? You go, hey, good way to go on those two. No. But do you see that he's, God's at work? And I can't tell you how many times I've had couples come back in, God's at work in their life, and I'll have the woman or the man say, ah, he hasn't changed or she hasn't changed. He or she did it again. And I always have to stop and say, no, well, what do you mean by that? Well, he did that same thing again. So are you looking for a perfect husband? Or are you looking for a husband that's growing? Well, he didn't do it as often. That's good. Let, let, let's, let's hold on to that one. A decreasing duration of sin. She, Esther, would get depressed and she wouldn't talk to anybody for three days. Now, it only lasts for an hour or two. I say, well, that's great. No, it's not great. But my question is, is it progress? It's the true and living God. Because what happens is, an hour in, God is doing a work and she's pushing out one idol and putting God back in. Do you see? A decreasing intensity of sin. This guy, when he got angry, man, boom, fist right through the wall, every word in the book. Now when he gets angry, he starts losing a little bit, doesn't hit the wall anymore, and walks outside and starts praying. You say, well, that's, that's not ideal. He should have never, you're right. But it's a decreasing intensity of sin. And the last would be an increased sensitivity to sin. The people who are growing the most in their Christian walk 
are more keenly aware of the depth of their own sinfulness, which, which makes them the most humble people around. You look at them and you say, like, oh, wow, like, man, that guy or gal is like, they're just a holy people. And you talk to them, and they're, they're, they're legit. They're just saying, God, I found so many things in my life, but God's grace is always so much deeper. And I'm just finding his forgiveness and his strength. And I just want to live that and share that with others. I mean, that's what God wants to do. We're celebrating 500 years of the Reformation in the month of October. So I thought it would be good to end with a quote from Martin Luther. Luther said this, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. I want Josh and Esther to know, although they're here, God wants to do that, but in doing, God wants to make you into that, but in making you into that, he will transform you at every step of the way as you deal with your relationship at the heart level from the inside out. Do I believe this? With all my heart. I've seen what God's done in my own life. And look, I still got a ways to go. Fair enough. And I've seen him do it in the lives of people that it's unexplainable any other way. So wherever you are, will you let God do his work? Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that we don't ever have to minimize sin because you've already maximized the grace of God. We can face it for what it is in the raw, its ugliness. We can do that, Lord, because the true and living God forgives and restores and transforms. So, Lord, I, I don't know where, where everybody is here in the auditorium and, and, and the relationship in marriage could be with their kids, could be a whole host of things. But would you, through your spirit, Put your finger on whatever needs to have the finger put on. And may they learn the joy of repentance as they confess and begin to find your grace is sufficient to transform them wherever they are. Lord, thank you for a gospel which has not only saved us and forgiven us, but is in the process of transforming us until we stand perfect in your sight one day. In Christ's name I pray, amen.